Welcome to the More Equity Podcast by Harlem Capital. Harlem Capital is an early stage, diversity-focused venture capital fund based in New York. We're on a mission to invest in 1,000 diverse entrepreneurs over the next 20 years. Thank you for following our journey and now on to the podcast. Crypto, NFTs, and decentralized finance are the buzzwords these days. Many believe the world of crypto will change everything. At the same time, respected investors and institutions remain speculative. I'm your host, Lizbeth Nunez, a fall intern at Harlem Capital. In our Crypto Convo series, we'll be talking to investors and innovators who have found great opportunity amongst the uncertainty. In this episode, we're joined by Anand Iyer, a visiting partner at Pair Venture Capital focused on blockchain and Web3 investments. Anand has founded multiple companies, including Trusted, Threadflip, and HitPost, and started his career building products at companies like Microsoft and Cisco. He's also an active angel investor, advisor to startups, and limited partner in several seed stage venture capital firms. Listen in to hear Anand's investor perspective on the basics, benefits, and risks of decentralized finance. Anand, welcome to the Harlem Capital Podcast. We're excited to have you and excited for our audience to have a chance to learn some insights from you as well. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. One of the things that we like to do is to get a sense of our interviewers' backgrounds. Wanted to know more about where you grew up and what are some aspects of the community that you grew up in that you love? Yeah. Uh, we're of Indian origin, so I'm, I'm Indian um, uh, by birth, but I grew up in Bahrain in the Middle East. Bahrain's a tiny island in the Arabian Gulf, and my parents moved there in the 70s. So yeah, I was born in India, but I grew up in Bahrain. And um, the community was uh, was interesting. It was very multicultural when I grew up. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of different sort of Asian influences there. And one of my sort of fondest memories is just hearing so many different languages. Obviously, Arabic was, was very popular, but you know, there's a lot of Indian immigrants there, a lot of Pakistani, a lot of Bangladeshis, a lot of Filipinos. So I grew up just hearing a lot of different things, uh, trying a lot of different cuisines. And um, it was for that reason, I, I'm kind of grateful for that because uh, it, was, it was an experience that I, I, that I cherish in, in terms of how I grew up. Your background is so interesting in terms of professional experience as well. So you started out building products for companies like Microsoft and Cisco. You later went on to go into investment, both from the LP side and then also as a hands-on investor. What kind of led you down that road towards investment? Yeah, uh, you know, with the LP investments, um, it was it was really about supporting friends. I, you know, there's a lot of I feel like it's the Silicon Valley path in some ways. I've lived and worked in the Valley now for like 20 years. And so many of my friends have graduated from operating roles to investment roles, like starting their own funds. And for my wife and I, it was really about supporting some of these folks as they were getting off the ground and, and just very fortunate to have been in their circles, you know, as for as long as we've been. Um, so, but that being said, I, I wasn't really hands-on, like my wife and I weren't really hands-on as angel investors till, till much later on, or at least till recently in the last three or three to four years, because it is, it's hard to do both. I, I applaud founders who can also be hands-on angel investors. Like I just couldn't do it. I'm always like, for me, I'm a hundred percent in, or I'm zero percent in, like there's no middle ground for me. So I didn't quite know how to straddle being uh, an angel investor while 
also running a company. So I felt like the best way to get exposure to early stage startups was through some of these friends who were starting funds. And that's kind of how we became LPs and continue to support friends with starting funds. You did found multiple companies, some of which exited very successfully. Um, how do you think that's informed your perspective as an investor? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I'd say that, uh, you know, first of all, like, yeah, you know, been, been very fortunate to have had these experiences and uh, I've learned so much about M&A that uh, I can, I, you know, I, it's definitely helped me think through various scenarios quite a bit. I, I'd say the biggest thing that I've learned most through my personal experience and now having spent time at Pair, um, where I'm a visiting partner, is uh, how to think about building a big business, right? So I think at the earliest stages, uh, as a as a product-minded founder or as an engineer or you know, anyone who wants to build a company, well, the first thing that comes to mind is I want to build a great app or build a great product. But what really sets you up for success is to think about how to build a great business, right? Like taking that product or app that you have, and then when you try to amplify that and think about how big this can get and making that into a big business, I think that's something that I have learned a lot from Pair uh, about how to, how to look for that, how to calibrate for that, and also how to help guide founders in the early stages think about that storytelling aspect of it. So it's something that I look for also when we uh, evaluate a business, there's great businesses that are not necessarily venture scalable and that's perfectly fine. Like there's, there's lots of such great businesses out there, but for um, in, in situations when you think about venture scale, you know, the one thing where I feel like we've, I've learned to calibrate really well through my own personal experience and through pairs to about is around how to build big businesses. And those big businesses, as you think of those, what are your investment focus areas now? Yeah, I exclusively focused on um, everything crypto. So blockchain, Web3 is, is what I do. Within crypto, I know that one area that has been particularly interesting to you lately is decentralized finance. And, and I want to talk to you a little bit about that because I, I know yeah. it's something that you've been learning a lot about. Decentralized finance is something that a lot of people are still trying to understand, as with a lot of things in the crypto space. When you're at a family barbecue or around the table with your friends, how would you simply explain what DeFi is? Yeah, the one thing I've learned is that I try not to explain things to my family <laughs> um, <laughs> because uh, somehow I don't know what it is. Like, I'm just so, I, I, I don't know if this is the case with you, but I'm so much like less patient with my family than I am with my friends when it comes to explaining key concepts. I'm like, oh, dad, I can't, I can't do this right now. Uh, so just, you know, that, that's kind of how it devolves. Um, but that's just, that's an interpersonal relationship thing. Yes, I do have this conversation a lot, especially for those who are very curious because obviously DeFi has, has grown up substantially in the last year and a half. And it is, it is starting to become more pervasive in how people think about it. People want to learn more about it as well. The way I'd like to start to break it down is, look, traditional finance is something we take for granted. Like we all use it, we all touch it. And we don't particularly think about even the bank accounts that we may have opened decades ago, right? So I know I have friends whose kids are not getting to college and they're like, yep, you know, we're going to open up our Chase account or Bank of America or Wells Fargo account for them. Like that's just the legacy sort of continues, but we don't really take a step back and think about what these banks do, how they operate. None of that has been really like challenged in you know, hundreds of years, right? So it's really easy to take it for granted. Um, but this is where I segue as I start to think about, you know, or what I talk to my friends about. 
at a macro level, there is, I think, the stat as of like a few years ago was that there's like 1.7 billion people in the world who are unbanked. So they don't have bank accounts. If you break that down in further, it's like, you know, obviously there's a lot of people in China. There's, they have the largest unbanked populations, people in India, Pakistan, Indonesia, and even in the US, I think there's like, you know, 15 million people in the US who are unbanked. And whereas like, it's easy for us to take for granted the fact that like we have these privileges to have a bank account, take advantage of all the uh, all the utility that comes to having a bank account, whether it's transferring money, getting a good savings account, whatever that might be. But there's, there are people out there who just don't have the same privileges we do. That's one. And second, um, looking at sort of, sort of macro level, level, there's like the rates of inflation. I know this has been a hot topic, even in the United States, for example, right? Like we're talking about things like hyperinflation, for example, but the rate of inflation in parts of the world, like Argentina or Eastern Europe or Turkey is is enormous, right? Like it's, you you really, they can't even trust their own local currency and they'd rather use the US dollar, for example. So, um, and when, when I start to paint this picture for folks who are like, wow, you know, it's not just about, you know, trying to get a better deal from your bank, but, you know, there are people who don't even have access to bank accounts who are dealing with incumbent solutions that just don't cater to them. And they're dealing with rates of inflation that are just all sort of untenable. And then I break it down into where DeFi really comes into play, right? Where imagine if the traditional finance structure can be challenged and built in a fashion where um, you're not just depositing your money and hoping that you get like a paltry yield from it, where, you know, the rate of inflation is actually higher than what you might make, you know, by setting, by putting your money into like a, you know, bank account, like a savings account like that. Or you don't have to think about the rate of inflation, right? You're not tying currency to, or the money you're making to what, what is happening at the government level, right? Like if we can decouple those, like how much, how better would life be for a lot of these people? So when I start to paint that picture, I think it starts to fall into perspective for friends about like what DeFi is and what it can do for them. Another sort of like simple example, right? Like, so I start talking about the problems a lot, like this is how it devolves. And another problem I talk about is that someone brought this up, it's a portfolio company of ours, I brought this up recently, they're like, you know, um, they're a young team that's building a better saving solution on top of DeFi. And they were like, isn't it strange that I have to have like a minimum of, at least this is with their bank, like I have to have a minimum of $50,000 in my bank account for me to pay $0 in wire fees. Whereas like, shouldn't it be the opposite? Like if you don't have as much money, you know, is when you should be paying less in wire fees, right? Like why are they forcing you to have like a high minimum and then they give you a discount because you have a high balance. Like it's the, you know, you should tax the rich, right? Um, and uh, I mean, and I totally understand why things are set up the way they are because the margins need to exist for traditional finance institutions to be able to take advantage uh, and, and thrive, right? So now this is where DeFi comes in, right? Imagine you're challenging these incumbent solutions, right? You're truly decentralizing it. Like it isn't a centralized bank. It isn't a centralized clearinghouse. It isn't centralized money operators, but it's truly decentralized. And these nodes are being run by everyday people like you and me. And we can benefit, like you, you can be an active participant in these nodes and, and be the ones who actually are getting paid for supporting the network, as opposed to the money flowing to traditional financial institutions. So that's when the wheels start spinning for friends and family, like, okay, of course, then it devolves into like, how, how do you do that, right? And so I would much rather have those questions and answer those. Um, and But this is sort of how I typically like to frame things. Like at a macro level, there are, there are systems at play here where there's a lot of 
that at least for me, like I think we take take for granted all the privilege we sort of live with, um, but that's not how the world really works and operates. And, and it'd be great to create sort of a level playing field and, and just challenge incumbent solutions with technology. We're seeing a lot of technology, a lot of developments out there where we can think of the ways in which this would really help people save or make money or increase the security of things. Um, let me ask you that follow on on the how. If you peek under the hood into, we know the benefits, but how does this really work? How is this different from our traditional form of finance? Yeah, yeah. So um, there's there's many different vectors to it. And the first, I'll, the, I'll start with a couple. So first, um, if you look at the kind of people who are working in decentralized finance right now, I wouldn't say that many of them have a traditional finance background. Um, you know, for example, if you were to go to your existing bank and say, hey, can I look at the source code that, that powers your bank today? They'll be like, what are you even talking about? Like, you know, we're never going to show you that. And even if you found the right person to talk to, they're never going to show you what's happening on the hood, right? Whereas um, if you look at what's happening in DeFi, the smartest people are working on, on solving the most interesting problems. And all of this is being done in the open, right? So you see, you're able to see the code that powers what's happening in this decentralized world, number two. And uh, three, traditional finance has been around forever, right? Like sure, banks are iterating and you know, things are getting markedly better. You have neobanks and you know, conveniences are happening better through various utility, like whether it's your phone or through apps and things like that. But it's still largely the same system through which you have access through different devices. Like that's pretty much it. DeFi is a relatively new concept. It's only been around for a few years, but it's look at the rate of innovation, right? Like you have savings apps, you have derivatives, you have insurance, you have brokerages, every sort of analogous traditional finance concept now exists in the world of DeFi. And it's only really happened. I mean, it's been maybe like two to three years of development to, to get to where we are. And it's almost at par with traditional finance in terms of technology and utility, uh, at least for technology. And utility is also growing, I think, north of like 100 billion in, in total value locked in, in DeFi. Uh, as of as of right now, an incredible clip as to how fast that has happened, right? So I guess to answer your question, I'd say like if you peek under the hood, how this is really working, it starts with the blockchain, right? The blockchain is a decentralized um, ledger basically that facilitates the ability for applications like financial applications to run on top of it. Um, that's what really powers it. And then I'd say Ethereum was the uh, was was sort of the advent in this. Uh, in this decentralized blockchain, programmable blockchain layer. And, and then you have DeFi as an application stack being built on top of that. So folks are coming in going, wait a second, like this is where we think like coordination capital money transfer, we think is the lowest hanging fruit. Let's get started there and show really showcase the power of decentralized technology, which is the blockchain. And then DeFi started to happen and it's become a whole movement in and of itself. So I'd say that if you start to peel another layer, then we start talking about the blockchain and, and how it really challenges existing um, money transfer operations, right? As, as, as a most fundamental example. And then you start looking at, wow, I can, I can build more things on top of this, right? Like I can use the concept of blocks and permissionless systems, distributed systems to really build incredible decentralized applications of which DeFi is one. And, and then that's, that's sort of like, you know, that would be the next layer of, of uh, uh, as you start to peel and, and start to learn more about what happens here. Some of the things that I think a lot of people are excited about in DeFi 
are also some of the same reasons for concern. And some of those mm -hmm. are, you know, cutting out the middleman, traditionally the institution that has vetted transactions or individuals making these transactions. Uh, there's potential yeah. wallet password risk. What if I forget my password and then I can't access my funds? There's nobody to help me get the password back. Um, or entering the wrong address and sending your funds to the to the wrong place. Totally. What are yeah. your thoughts on the risks here? How safe is this right now to be involved? And what potentially are the mitigants? Yeah, it is. It's definitely, you know, the way DeFi has been built right now, it's definitely early adopter technology, right? It is like super early adopter technology. I mean, it's the, the kind of steps that you'd have to take to get into the world of DeFi are, are pretty, you know, the, the barrier for entry is high. And it's almost deliberate because I don't think you want to make this that easy for people to get in. Like you said, you know, and I know of so many folks who are like, okay, I'll set up my wallet and then oh, shoot, like I, 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 I didn't write down my, my passphrase and then something happened, like my computer or something got reset. I've lost this access altogether and now all my funds are sitting in this wallet, right? So it is kind of scary and you need to be very much on top of, like you need to be very diligent in managing your own system. But to your point, yes, you know, the, the same thing that makes this truly beautiful is also super scary, right? Like basically, I think Uncle Ben said in Spider-Man, right? Like with great power comes great responsibility. And um, yeah, you just need to be super responsible when, you, when you're working with these systems. So yes, there is, you're going from a, centralized custodial solution where you you respect and trust the fact that your banks are going to do right by your assets to managing these things yourself and therefore like with that comes inherently a lot of risk you are probably your own biggest risk right like that is number one like you need to know how to manage your systems and then you have bad actors out there like you know there's just knowing the fact that there are people or entities out there with large amounts of capital setting these wallets there are people trying to take advantage of that and it is the scams are getting highly pervasive. Like you are, and by the way, this is, this isn't, you know, a lot of this is, you know, quote unquote internet money, right? So there is the fact that like, it is, it is relatively easy to, you know, if, if the, if the guards were lower to get access to someone's capital and then to be able to just like steal it, like it is, um, it is scary how bad that is. So you're a risk. If you don't set things up well, there's scammers out there who are a risk. And then the protocols that you deal with, like they're another risk as well. Uh, someone may have heard of a trade that happened or where they made a lot of money or they bought an NFT, which netted them a lot of money. And therefore you get caught up in this hype and you feel like you want to get out of this curve. And so you may hear of like, someone might send you a link to what you think might be the next big protocol or project. And you next thing they've connected your wallet, you've agreed to deposit some funds in there and, and it's gone. Right. So there's bad actors like that for now, you know, these developers or like you know, calling them developers is, is probably not fair to developers, but the scammers out there who are like trying to steal your money. So it is it is very scary. It's like depositing your money in a bank when you don't know anything about this bank. And these banks exist for a reason because they've built up their credibility over the years. So 100 percent agree. It's as it's set up today, it's meant for early adopters who are okay, you know, who are willing to take the risk as well. Like there is that factor. Like not only are you super early adopter, but you're comfortable with the risk. And the last thing I'll add is that if you look at any of these DeFi projects out there, they're intentionally irreverent, right? It looks like you're playing a video game or it looks like a website from the mid nineties. And it's in intentional in that setup because they, they sort of want you to feel like you're gambling a little bit, you know, where it doesn't feel like you're playing with real money. And they want that. They're like, okay, it's easy for me to do this because 
would you do this with like $100 or $1,000 of your actual money? It's going to be tough. Would you do it with a currency that you don't really have a direct association with? Like there's this psychological impact on our brains about like what USD means versus a token on the blockchain. Like those are two, you know, we think about them differently. And right now, yeah, for early adopters, this feels like gambling money, right? So there is that risk as well, you know, where you might be more comfortable doing certain things online that you're not comfortable doing offline. Um, so those are, you're absolutely right. There are, there's a lot of risks involved, but we are at that stage. Like this is still very immature. There's a lot of things that need to be done, but that's the beauty of sort of where we are and what excites me about how we can make this more tenable and usable for the rest, for the, for the masses out there. A lot of the battle, as with most things, is the education factor. A lot of people don't know how to even begin to approach this entire space that's new. You recently launched a DeFi masterclass to share your learnings with a larger group of people. Can you tell us a little bit about that class and why you launched it? Yeah, um, you know, it was, it's actually it segues well from the last question you asked me, which was, you know, what are the risks here? And even as an early adopter, and, you know, I, I think I'm fairly comfortable dealing with technology. I grew up as a developer, so I'm comfortable peeking under the hood, but I made a ton of mistakes and um, that's number one. So I think that was a big motivation for me was to make sure that I didn't want others to make the same mistakes I did. But second, I, you know, I, I did spend a bunch of time as a, as a developer platforms and a developer evangelist at Microsoft, where I was teaching others what it's like to build on the Microsoft stack. And I really enjoyed that part of my job. And so that was the second sort of like selfishly, I loved teaching and I loved sharing my, my learnings with others. And the last thing I'll say is that I think this is like the Richard Feynman technique, right? Which is like, you, you learn better when you're sort of like when you're teaching. And so I was, I was learning in public by literally making sure that I was teaching and I needed to get my act together to know how to teach this well, right? So it's a sort of iterative process of ensuring that I have my stuff together and I can teach this and communicate this well. And then with every time we do one of these classes, and of course, DeFi is changing every day. Like by the time we're done with this podcast, like something new will have come out. And so I need to refine my concepts, our curriculum literally every week as we do these new cohorts every month. So that's been a lot of fun for me as well, just to stay on top of what's happening there to make sure that I can, I can communicate effectively. And fully cognizant that I don't know everything yet, you know, that I'm still learning and growing. And, but that's the beauty. I also love the community because, you know, with some of these discords that I'm engaged in, people that I get to meet, even though I've never really met them in person, I'm able to learn a lot and soak in and, and share my learnings with this course. So yeah, that was sort of the motivation in one part. But the second part is also, it's sort of segued and the course has sort of taken a life of its own. We've now done some private sessions for some cohorts and aspirationally, um, my, my partner in crime in this is, is a really is one of my best friends. His name is Kedrick. And we want to, uh, we now know there's a disconnect between sort of like the technology world and maybe some part of that is the crypto world and just like government institutions, right? Like people on the Hill, for example. So we're truly trying to bridge that gap and, and trying to inform people who are, you know, decision makers and, and, and passing laws so they can really understand, you know, what, DeFi is and how it can benefit the world and not make this like, you know, don't, don't want to be polarized in terms of how you, how you communicate or how you pass laws or regulations. So we're trying to make a concerted effort to 
be um, just having, you know, just to educate them if at all possible. So there's some initiatives on the way to, to make sure that we can, we can be a partner there for them and not make this truly one-sided in this approach. And who is the course open to? It's open to everyone. Um, so we're, we're on this platform called Maven. So it's maven.com. And yeah, where any, anyone can sign up. It's, there's no, you know, uh, the course is very introductory in nature. We started like a very one hundred, if you like analogous to like college courses, we started like a one-on-one level and then we move our way up all the way to like a 401 or 501 by week four. So, but it's really open to anyone who's, who's just got an aptitude to learn. That's great. And I love that you're creating that for people who just want to learn the space and have some sort of structure or guidance through, through their learning process. You touched on two things earlier as we were talking about DeFi, blockchain and Ethereum. So two very mm-hmm. hot terms right now. As you think about what you teach in your course, what are some yeah. things about blockchain that you believe everyone should know? Yeah, um, the, the, the one thing that I would, I think that everyone should understand is that it is, it, it, the, the goal behind the blockchain is to be truly decentralized, right? The blockchain is only as powerful as the, as the nodes that are sort of participating in it and are powering the blockchain. Um, and the one other thing I'll add is that the name comes from the fact that it's a, it's a chain of blocks, right? So it's in each block sort of represents a transaction or something that needs to be done, right? So uh, it's a de- decentralized distributed ledger. Um, it's powerful technology. It's, you know, it's been in the works for like over a decade now in terms of how people have been thinking about it with the, with the first sort of Bitcoin white paper that came about. So yeah, these are some of the things that we cover in our course at sort of like a very granular level. Um, and we feel it's really important to share, like we take a very bottom-up approach. We talk about the blockchain in our very first section of the course. Where we're like, okay, this is what, you know, we don't come out at a top-down as in like, we don't talk about DeFi and then get into middleware and talk about blockchain. We talk about blockchain first and then make our way out. So yeah, we do spend some time talking about this and, and how important it is. And it's, um, it's easy to take for granted when you just use DeFi or you connect a wallet and, or you buy an NFT, but there's really some really interesting magic happening behind the scenes, which is... Um, for me, it's, it's, it's super interesting because, you know, I, I made this transition into being, into believing and, and committing the, re- the next chapters of my career into crypto. I really started this journey only about like 20 months ago. And so I'm still relatively new to it, but what really sucked me in was thinking about, you know, and I have an, I have an eight-year-old and, and I was, you know, during the thick of COVID, I was thinking about like well, how the world and the landscape would change and and what if I were to put myself in her shoes, let's say ten years out, like what could that really look like, you know? And what really drew me in was that you know I believed having spent some time with these really smart people learning about the blockchain, learning about DeFi, was that this that crypto and this blockchain technology is truly going to be the fabric of everything that someone like my daughter would be touching when when she is eighteen years old, right? And so that was super exciting for me to think about and. You know, wouldn't it be awesome if she's like, oh, you know, my dad was talking about crypto like 10 years ago, right? Like that would be pretty incredible. So in some part, it was like thinking about her generation and her peers. And so I weave a lot of that sort of thought process and thinking about living in the future into the course as well. And every aspect of what we do is, and we're still super early, like you and I having this conversation, people listen to this podcast. We're still very, very early. We represent a very small you know, minority uh, and of the population that's interested in this stuff, but it's going to be truly groundbreaking. And we're seeing this happen literally every week, whether it's, you know, uh, things that Facebook has been working on for a long time, 
to the announcements that Square has made to Facebook rebranding itself as of yesterday, so on and so forth. Like it's, we're going all in, like the world is going all in on this and we're still very early. So anyhow, um, going back to your question, yeah, you know, this is the part about the blockchain that we we talk about at a macro layer and then we, we go into the micro as well and just discussing the aspects of technology that's truly groundbreaking. Facebook has changed his name and apparently Wendy's has as well now changed its name to Meet. I don't know if you saw that on their Twitter account. Um, Love it. <laughs> one, thing, one thing also you touch on is the significance of Ethereum specifically. So yeah. what, what's so special about Ethereum and how do you see it evolving with upgrades down the road? Yeah. Um, so this is, you know, and for me, this is a very like, but this is again, another bottom-up approach in terms of my affinity for Ethereum, but I'll give you a little bit of background. So I, you know, back in like 2013, I remember my daughter was only a few months old when I first read the Bitcoin white paper. And, you know, my interest in it really got peaked from when, from, from like a cryptography angle, it was less about, it was less about Bitcoin. It was more about, and I've taken a few courses in, in cryptography. So I was like, I was really intrigued by that. I had no idea how big this could get. And I wasn't really that forward thinking. Was, I was just geeking out as a technologist when I first got interested in it. And I, my interest also waned because I didn't really know what I could do with it because I'm such a developer and developer platforms person. Now, segueing to Ethereum, when Ethereum came out, I'm like, aha, this makes sense now because now you can, it's like, it's basically programmable money is sort of like what, I, what this feels like to me. And it became super interesting. And, you know, inherently one of the first ones to, to build this, like to build this truly programmable blockchain using, you know, Solidity as like the smart contract platform made a ton of sense to me. So that's sort of like really what clicked for me. I just go back to the fact that every platform has been successful because it's had a developer platform component to it, right? Whether it's Microsoft or it's Linux or it's the iPhone, right? Like there's this whole thesis around like, and I think Unisquare Ventures is a great article about this, you know, they call this the flat protocol where um, in any case, uh, you know, the, the, the blockchain layer in and of itself is like became becoming programmable because of Ethereum was a huge, uh, it was a huge signal for me that there's something huge here. And since then, obviously I've been, you know, been a big fan of it. Um, even bought a bunch of Ethereum way back in the day and just been, you know, I've, I've, I've never sold any of my Bitcoin or Ethereum that I bought. I've just held on to it because I still believe in the long-term future behind it. So that's what excites me about Ethereum. I think it's, um, it's done, it's done wonders for this technology. And if you look back the last 20 months, in the last two years, Ethereum has been literally the pioneer behind the DeFi movement, right? Like DeFi wouldn't have happened had it not been for Ethereum. And it is happening on Ethereum in spite of its flaws, right? There is, it is not like, I think I saw someone mention today, they're like, I wanted to send 100 USD, 100 USDC, which is a stable coin to someone else. I just want to transfer $100 to someone else. And it's going to cost me $93 in gas fees. Like this is, this is unacceptable, right? Like, I mean, we talk about wanting to use the blockchain for challenging incumbent technologies like remittances, for example. So that's not going to work when we know that. But it is very promising in terms of what it's done. And it's, you know, in spite of its flaws, uh, there's others who've now stepped up and said, like, we can make faster, efficient, high throughput blockchains. And those have now gained a lot of traction. And Ethereum is going to go through its upgrades as well, as you pointed out. So like excited for that to happen, which I think will reduce gas fees and it'll be, you know, ecologically, you know, environmentally friendly as well. So yeah, super bullish on it as it stands right now. Very grateful because of what they've done for the community and, and also very promising in terms of where I think you can go. 
You have a really interesting perspective, uh, both as a as a student right now of the subject, also a teacher who at the same time is learning by teaching, but you're also an investor in the space. And uh, being open to learning is just a very important quality of investors. What's an innovative idea that you have recently invested in within this space? Or what is a problem that you would love to see a founder solve? We, we love all our children equally. Um, so it's hard to pick one. I'd have met this founder sometime back and you know, I, I'll talk about the technology first, but really the one big learning for me, uh, having spent time at Pair, is how we, uh, you know, how we really get to know founders and people. It's a very, it's, it is a very personal thing for us and for them to get to know us as well, right? So I remember meeting John from a company that he started called Seasons, um, you know, earlier in the year. And the Seasons platform is, is literally, it's a, it's something that makes it easy and accessible for collectors to consume, collect, and trade collections or an album of NFTs, as opposed to even like a single NFT or a fraction of an NFT. And he came at this from a very philosophical perspective as to why this was important to him, because there is a big gap between creators and consumers of NFTs. Like you have to be, you know, some of these like really valuable NFTs cost a lot of, you know, they cost a lot. So he wanted to democratize access to these NFTs and collections of these NFTs, and also using new and upcoming paradigms like DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations, to power the facilitation of these albums and creation of these albums and ownership of these albums, et cetera. So um, if I were to zoom out for a second, what really appealed to me about John and his team and how they're approaching this was, aside from being really smart technologists, was how they thought about the people aspect of it. Um, and how you're able to onboard more people into getting into the, the world of NFTs, but using the power of the blockchain and technology to create infrastructure to support things like NFT album creations and management, right? So if, I had to, if you had to take away a couple of things from that, I'd say that at a bro- broad strokes, like I'm very excited about like picks and shovels, infrastructure plays like that in, in the world of Web3 at large, where you're creating infrastructure to... Um, make something easier, make something more useful, right? Um, so that's stuff that I'd love to, you know, I'd love to hear from founders are working on things like that all day long. We, we love stuff like that. Just segue to your second question, which is like stuff that excites me. And, the, you know, what I've seen from my lens as an investor, but also as a developer is that there is this whole like white space around better developer tooling and infrastructure on the blockchain, right? So like coding and building things on the blockchain looks very different than it does in the web two world and we just need better infrastructure and support for it. So, you know, and this spans the whole spectrum of the stack of the developer stack. So that is an area that I'm really excited about and I'm hoping to see more, uh, more things happen there. And I think the way I had, you know, someone explained it to me the other day or someone described it to me was, you know, we're in flight, to, you know, we're literally assembling the plane while we're in flight. Right. And that's sort of like what it feels like to be coding on the blockchain right now. So there's still a lot of work to be done there and I'm excited to see more tools being built there. Definitely. A lot more to come, a lot more to learn for all of us. Um, I have some last lightning round questions for you. We want to know what was the last physical CD you bought? Oh boy. Uh, I'm going to go off on a tangent here for a second. So I was, again, I'm I'm, I'm such a geek when it comes to these things. So um, I... (laughs) I think I got suckered into, you know, this may, this is going to predate a lot of people probably listen to this, but there was this whole thing when I was in college around, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm blanking on the name now, but you'd get like, you'd, you'd send in like a penny and you'd get like 12 CDs, you know, there's like this massive scheme 
to just like suck you into buying CDs every month. Um, anyhow, long story short, I, I don't remember the last CD, but I was, I went big on this mini disc craze. I, I, I don't think many people know, even know what this is, but there was a new technology that had come out that was supposed to be somewhere between CDs and like floppy disks and they call them mini disks. Um, and I went, I was, uh, I was just ripping tracks on these mini disks and it was a technology that went nowhere at the end of the day. So I couldn't tell you the name of the last CD because I was very upset that I got suckered into you know, a, a subscription for CDs, which I never touched or used. I didn't have a CD player. I just had an, a mini disc player. So a non-answer to your question, but I, I, was, I was the geek that went all in on MDs and, and uh, that didn't go anywhere. <laughs> it's always a throwback when somebody says floppy disc. All right, cardio or weight training? I'm, I'm big into strength training. I, I, I religiously work out like six days a week and I'm, I'm big on weight training. And perhaps some parting wisdom for our listeners. If someone just bought their first bit of crypto, what do you recommend as their next move? Um, again, this is gonna be such a non-answer. You're not gonna like this. It really depends. Like, what did you buy? And like, what, why did you buy it? Because if the answer is like Doge or Shiba Inu, then that's a different conversation. Like this is really, I'm like, sell, sell right now. Uh, that's again, not financial advice. I, I, don't, I don't hold any of these mean points. And so I don't know what advice I could possibly give you. But then if you bought like Bitcoin or Ethereum, you know, that's fantastic. You should hold it. Um, and if you're bullish on ETH2, which I think you should be, for example, if you bought Ethereum, then you should stake it using something like Lido and, and make some, you know, make up to like 6% on it uh, by staking it as you, as you help support the Ethereum to upgrade. Uh, that's one example. Or yeah, I mean, maybe if you, if you bought into an index fund or an ETF, which are starting to get more popular, then, then kudos to you. Like you're, you're very, very early and you're, you're supporting the new form of internet money. So I would say that hold on to it, right? Like think about the future. I'll, I'll say like, as you, as you pointed out, right? Like words of wisdom. The one thing that um, I've learned, uh, you know, Josh Koppelman from First Round Capital told me this a long time ago. He said, there's, uh, there's two kinds of greed. There's long-term greed and short-term greed. And he said, try to be long-term greedy, you know? And, uh, and so my, my advice is kind of the same, which is if you, if you think long-term and you believe long-term, then you will act commensurately, right? Like you will, you will want to believe in that. Like you're not trying to flip something for the short term. You'll want to support the system and you'll want to help yourself and other people grow around you. So that would be the last thing I'd say is that like in the spectrum of all this noise and people making money quickly by flipping things, uh, if you have a long-term perspective, um, you will come out ahead because this wave is, is pretty massive and it's going to really redefine the way we think about money, capital coordination at large. So um, yeah, be in it for the long haul. Great advice. Thank you. And um, where can people find all things Anand going forward in the crypto world? Where can people follow you for more information? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm just AI on Twitter. That's, that's my initials. And then I have links to my website or our course um, off of there as well. And my DMs are open. So please message me anytime. If you're working on something interesting uh, in the space, we'd love to hear from you. But yeah, that's the best place to find me. Wonderful. Thank you again. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to learn more, subscribe to the More Equity podcast on Apple and Spotify. You won't want to miss the other episodes in our Crypto Convo series. To stay connected to all things Harlem Capital, be sure to also follow us on Twitter and subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for learning along with us. Until next time.